now, turn your attention to the scriptures, please, in the gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. Open your Bibles to chapter 9, 37 to 45. We'll read 33, uh, 43b, 4 and 5 at the end of the sermon. We'll just read right now 37 through 43, so don't think we left something off. We're going to hit that at the end, and you'll see why in a moment. But remember, this is coming out of the transfiguration. We're going to talk about the transfiguration a little bit and understand why this is happening when it is. It's instructive to understand how Scripture is put together and what it's designed to teach us 2,000 years later. So we're going to look at this passage deeply today. Okay, Luke 9, 37 to 45, and then we'll go to the Lord's table together. Hear now the word of God. The next day, when they came down from a mountain, a large crowd met him. Man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallow board. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Nobody came here interested in listening to the imagination of a man, but they hunger and thirst for the revelation of God. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, a word of comfort for those in storm winds, and a word of rest for those who are tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people that some might be saved. So, Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Three headings, real simple, in this passage. Three headings. The title, Divinity versus the Demon. Heading one, Divine Purpose. What's the purpose in this passage? We have to understand how these dots connect. And, and let me just explain that very, very briefly. It's not uncommon for preachers today and pastors and people. They'll take, if you imagine Scripture as a brick wall, and all of the bricks are different individual verses, and all of it compiles the entire Bible, you have to be careful taking a brick out of the wall and, and, and looking at it and, and preaching it, teaching on it, without understanding the context, which means once you've looked at the verse by itself, then you have to put the brick back into the wall, and you have to look at what surrounds it, the passage, and then the chapter, and then the book, and then all of Scripture, because it all has to fit. There's no contradiction in Scripture. So you'll see why this is where it is today and what it's designed to teach us. Jesus is still concerned that the disciples do not understand the kind of Messiah that has been promised in the Old Testament. They're missing something. So this is very deep. And it's important why this is happening the way it is. So we have to put that brick back into the wall and understand it contextually. Why when he comes down? Why after the transfiguration does this event take place? You'll see that. So there's divine purpose here. Number two, there's divine power. And then, of course, finally, there's divine person. Okay? We're going to head out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch, shall we? Number one, 
divine purpose. We're going to go back to the transfiguration in just a moment. But before we do that, it's important to pause here. Look at Luke 9.37, the passage we just read. A couple things in there I want to touch on briefly. The next day when they came down, that's instructive, circle that. You'll see we marked it up on the screen for you. From a mountain, a large crowd met him. We're going to deal with the portion at the end first and then come back to came down. Notice what it says. A large crowd met him, but, but notice at the beginning, they came down. So what's that about? Well, the crowd had no interest in the disciples, the three of them. They came for Jesus. Why is that an instruction for pastors and preachers and ministers and Bible teachers? You didn't come here to meet with me today. You came here to have an encounter with the holy, righteous, and living God. And it is my duty and responsibility to facilitate that. That's instructive. There's four that came down off the mountain, but they came to meet Jesus. That's my job. That's all I'm here to do is to give you the word of God, preaching the whole counsel of God, that you would have an encounter with the one true living God. That's it. So that's instructive. They met him. They don't say we met all of them at the, the bottom of the mountain. But now go back. It came down. What, what is that? You hear an echo. Remember how we've said over and over again to strengthen our students, this is one word to one world? One word, a single strand of truth runs through all of sacred scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And that truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? God's unfolding plan of redemption through Christ. That strand means all of this is connected somehow. Jesus is everywhere. He's part of all of it. So when you read this in Luke 9.37, you can't miss. They came down off the mountain. Last week, remember, we talked about the mountain experience with Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Go back with me to Exodus 3, 7 to 8. Don't miss this. This is critical. God said, I have indeed seen. This is the key. What, when God comes down off the mountain in the Old Testament, why is he coming down? It's critical. And then we see then in the New Testament, it's one and the same God coming down, doing the same thing. You see how it fits? That's really one of the, there, there's an apologetic of Jesus. He's doing the exact same thing in the New that he was doing in the Old. But now he's God incarnate revealed in flesh. So God said, I heard indeed and seen the misery of my people in Egypt. We're getting ready for the Exodus redemption. I have heard their crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Now here it is. So I what? I have come down. God comes down off of the mountain to do what? To rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them up into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Even before that, we see what? The great condescension of God coming down out of heaven, the throne. That's the condescension of Christ. So when we read this in Luke 9.37, we, we shouldn't miss that that's, that is a pattern of God coming down off of the holy mountain to rescue, to minister, to meet his people in their deepest place of need. Here Jesus is doing that, and it's really a shout to the watching world then and the reading world today. This is one and the same God. This is Israel's God incarnate, the one true living God, Jesus Christ. Back now to the passage last week. We'll be very brief, but we have to touch it. We have to go back to the transfiguration so that we understand why this event's taking place now. Jesus took 9, 28 to 31, and then 33. Ready? Jesus took Peter, John, and James up a mountain. 
And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as lightning. Moses and Elijah, remember the law and the prophets kind of encompasses the entire Old Testament. Moses representing the law, Elijah the, the prophets. We already unpacked that, so we can't go any further today. They appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. About what? About his departure. And that was not his ascension. It was his crucifixion, how he would depart this world physically through death. They're talking about it on this mountain. Remember, Moses had a mountaintop experience. Elijah had a mountaintop experience. Jesus brings up the three disciples to have one in the transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah are there. It all fits perfectly. It's a puzzle. And the pieces fit to strengthen your faith. Remember, we believe by faith, and we believe the Bible is the word of God by faith. But it's also an intellectual and it's a rational faith that is rooted in historical events. This is not a blind leap. There is content to what you believe. And that content is, is clear and rational and provable. That's why it's important that we understand both aspects of what we read in the scriptures. Yes, we take God at his word. He said it. Remember the old bumper sticker? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Strike the center statement. I believe it. Who cares if you believe it? God said it. That settles it. That's the end of it. It's either true or it's not. So God said it. It settles it. We believe that. But God gives us more than that. He shows us how it beautifully fits together. There's no blind leap. It's a far greater blind leap to believe there is no God or to believe that Jesus isn't the coming Messiah. He didn't come and it's it's far greater leap. So he takes them up. He has the appearance, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus about the departure, which he was about to fulfill. Okay, so he's about to fulfill the prophecies of the old and the new. He himself prophesies this. We'll see it in a moment. So Peter, being Peter, often with foot and mouth disease, Peter says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. What does Peter want? Peter wants the glory of the kingdom of God now. He has no interest in in this death thing that Jesus was talking about. And he gets rebuked for that, remember? No, far be it from you, Master, for you to die. Get behind me, Satan. That's after Peter gives that great Christological confession, you are the Christ, and in Matthew he adds the son of the living God. And in the next breath, Jesus is rebuking him because he says, no, you're not going to die. So it's important that we understand what's happening here. So let's keep walking through this, this departure. It's important that we get this. And we see then this event that's under consideration today. What departure was Jesus about to fulfill? Remember, his first passion prediction, which was already predicted in the Old Testament, Luke 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Throughout the Old Testament, we read that, and we have it here from Jesus himself. The prophecy now that he's going to fulfill, it's his own passion prediction. Back to the passage. Watch this now. This is, this is key. Here we're back into the passage now. We know what they were doing on the mountain. We know the glory that was revealed. We know that Peter wanted to stay. He wanted to put up shelters. Remember, it was the time of the Festival of the Booths, about six months before the Passover, and that was symbolic. They, they every year gathered to remember how God provided in the wilderness for 40 years. They lived in temporary dwelling places, booths, little, 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 little 
tents and huts, and that's what they lived in. So Peter wants to set that up. Why? He wants to stay there. He has no interest in, in a cross. He wants the crown. He wants the glory now. Let's stay here. We have everything we need, that mountaintop experience. But now they come down. This is instructive for all of us. We should have a mountaintop experience, yes? And it should be fairly regular. You have it when you come to church if you're meeting with the living God. You're sitting right now on holy ground. When you're in your own Bible study, you're in prayer. You have those mountaintop experiences. But don't stay there. You're not supposed to stay there. You're supposed to come down off the mountain and do what? The Lord's work. It's time to get busy. Jesus says, no, now's not the time. We've had that experience. You've seen the glory, the glory of the, the one true living son. But now we have to come down off the mountain. There's work to do. Very instructive. So now he's encountered in the valley. A man called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Notice the pathos there. Instead of it's just my son, it's my only child. So his only child is an only son, and the son is the heir. And if the heir dies, the family disintegrates. So it's designed to pull you in more deeply into the, to the story. Not only my child, it's my only child, and it's a son on top of it. So that's the depth of the anguish in the heart of the father. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams, throwing him into convulsions, foaming at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. Okay, so they're on the mountain. The glory of the Lord appears. They experience it. But Jesus says, no, no. He doesn't even address the booth thing. Let's set up three booths. He doesn't even address it. They come down. The next day they come down off the mountain and they come right to this. Why does Jesus come down off the mountain? This guy just happens to show up. Jesus has a divine appointment. He has a divine appointment with this father and this son who's possessed. From before the foundation of the world, he had a divine appointment. At that moment, in that place, after the transfiguration. So, what will the departure... Here's the question. Ready? You're going to see how beautifully this fits. This is strengthening your faith. What will the departure of Jesus do? If we understand the departure... He's going to give an object lesson right here. He's going to show exactly what it is. But we'll go to 1 John 3, 8. Because we have all the scripture. They didn't. He has to give an object lesson to them. We can simply read all the scripture. 1 John 3, 8 says what? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the... What are the works of the devil? Well, all, all of the stuff that's gone wrong. Every miracle dealt with the works of the devil, right? And Jesus walks on water. Why? The water's turbulent and the winds are howling. It wasn't like that in paradise. The world is broken. The cosmos is broken. Everything is broken. People are born blind and lame and, and deaf. And then, why? It's broken. Everything is broken. So he's come and he's showing how he's destroying. With his message and his miracles, he's showing how he is destroying the works of the devil. But there's something even deeper for him to do. You remember his wilderness experience? You remember because it was written in the gospel accounts and you had a chance to read it. They don't know about that. They don't know about it until he shares it with them. So the masses don't know. That was a battle between Satan and Jesus all alone in the wilderness. We have that in our gospel accounts and we can read that 2,000 years later and understand the battle that took place. So he has to show something more to the watching world. He has to demonstrate his power. 
Does he really have power over the spiritual forces in this world? Can he truly defeat Satan and his demons? So the question, and then we go to the second point, what is the best picture of destroying the works of the devil? It's nice that the lame could walk and, and he gave sight to the blind. Those are the works of the devil, right? All of those things, everything that's broken is a work of the devil. But what's the best picture of destroying the works? Number two, divine power. Before we hit the power, just we have to pause for just a moment and look at a lack of faith from the disciples. Take a look, 40 and 41. The, the man, the father, says this to Jesus. And I'll tell you why. You'll probably remember anyway. I begged your disciples to drive it out, the demon, but they could not. Okay, what's that all about? Three are on the mountain, nine are in the valley. The guy comes to the nine. He says, please cast this demon out. Why, why should they have been able to do that? You have your Bibles right there. I don't have it on the screen for you. You can go back to first verse in Luke 9. Jesus gave them power and authority to do what? Cast out all demons, all of them. There was no demon that was beyond their power. So if Jesus gave them power to cast out demons, what should they have been able to do? Right. Why couldn't they? A lack of faith. That's all. That's what, so now Jesus, now, now you're going to hear an echo. You're going to hear an Old Testament echo here again because it's the same God, right? One word to one world. Watch what he says. Oh, unbelieving. He's speaking to the disciples primarily, but he's speaking to all the people there. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Don't think of a moral perversion. You know how you pervert. Don't, 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 don't. No, this is different. A perverse generation. This is a generation that is not taking God at his word. Remember the old phrase, you are a stiff-necked people? That, that's, what, that's what he's saying. But we'll, we'll go to the Old Testament in a second. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Deuteronomy 32, 20. Listen to what God says in the Old Testament. Ready? God said, I will hide my face from them, for they are a perverse generation. They are a stiff-necked people. They will not trust me. They will not take me at my word. They will continue to turn away from me, children who are unfaithful. This is after the Israelite exodus. They've been freed from bondage. 400-plus years in bondage. All the miracles that they saw. Can you imagine yourself? Put yourself, remember, you want to get into the story and try to get an understanding of, of what's going on. Imagine the miracles that you saw. That was one thing. But now imagine walking on dry ground through the Red Sea. And you have these two gigantic walls of water. And you're walking through. And the whole time, you're just, this is not good. So you're trying to, like, boot the goats and, like, get going. Get to, and you want to get to the other side. So you get to the other side. And you make it, all of them couple million people, they make, they get there. And you turn around and you look in the wall of water. Both comes in on the Egyptian army. That's pers- they saw all of this. And they continue to turn away from God. Why? I know what you're thinking. Same thing that, that I'm thinking. We think the same thing. If we were there and we saw all of those plagues and all of that stuff, and we walked through the Red Sea on dry, we never would have turned away from God. Would we? Yeah. How many times you turned away from God just today? Forget the whole week. We're no different. That's, that's what the Bible is teaching us. We're all stiff-necked. How many times during the day do we not take God at his word? That we're stiff-necked. That that's what he's saying. You perverse generation. I, I, I told you to go cast out the... De- and, and this guy has come back and says you couldn't do it? Why? 
Why, 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 why did you attempt to do it with unbelief in your heart? Why? So what's the point? Take God at his word. What has he spoken into your life that you need to take as truth? Understanding the context of the truth. But that's what he's upset about. And it takes us back to the Old Testament. Same God, same people, same people today. That's the challenge. Taking God at his word. Okay, now back to the power. Ready? 42. He's frustrated. A holy frustration. How long will I just put up with you guys? And then he says, bring, bring your son to me. He's had enough. Now, what happens instantly inside the son? The, the, the demon knows who's talking. Who were the first to identify who Jesus was in the New Testament? The demons. Not the, not the disciples. The demons. So the demon now panics. How do we know the demon panics? Watch. Don't miss this. Even while the boy was coming... The boy's now coming. He's being brought to Jesus. The demon knows who just spoke. Bring the boy to me. He knows the word of God. He knows the sound of his voice. The demon threw him one last shot. I'm going to take one more shot. The demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. A couple things. Notice the compassion. The passage is not about the compassion of Christ, but notice it. He gives the boy back to his father. Now, you want to go deeper just for fun? No, let's do it. Only son, given back to his father. The son was basically dead. If you have to go to Matthew and you have to go to Mark to read a little bit more of the account. But this demon was trying to throw this boy into open fires. You go, where's open? Open fires are everywhere in, in, in that culture at that time, right? For warmth and for cooking. So open fires everywhere. And open wells. Wells were open cisterns that were dug. So the demon's trying to throw him in. We don't know for how many years, but he can't do it. Why? Jesus has a divine appointment with him. So he isn't going to kill him. But notice, the boy is really as good as dead. He's going to die. He's, he's going to get in the fire at one point. He's going to get into, the, into one of the wells. He's going to die. But the boy's given back to his father. Echo? Isaac? As good as dead, three-day march, death march to the mount, given back to his father. But there is an only son who isn't given back first. He must and he will die. Jesus. You see how all of this fit? He will actually be put to death. But then he will be given back. We'll hit that at the very end. So there's, there's the picture of the power it's one thing to heal the blind and the lame and multiply some fish and some look, but does he have the power to destroy the deepest works of the devil, meaning the devil himself? Can he do that? The demons know he can. Rebuke him and spirit left. Know this. Let this be an instruction to you. Husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and brothers to brothers and all of us. Your marriage, your enemy is not on the other side of your marriage bed. Children, your enemy is not your parents. Parents, not your children. Brothers and sisters, what's the enemy? We have to realize the reality of the truth of the world that we live in. And that'll close this point for us. Ephesians six twelve. This is the truth. Do we take God at his word? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's not our struggle. 
but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the truth. Now, you can't go as far, and if you're old enough, you remember back, and think it was the 70s with Flip Wilson, right? The devil made me do it. You can't do that. You can't keep saying the devil's in my toaster when you burn your toast. You left it in too long. Take responsibility for that. Take it out sooner. Reset the dial. Do something. Don't, don't do that. Some people go way too far. Devil, 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 devil. But, but you can't go the other side. You have to understand the reality. It's real. It's real. It's there. There's only one devil. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. The devil only does the bidding of, of the Almighty. He can only do what the Almighty allows him to do. We know that in the book of Job, right? You know all those things, but you know it's real. You know that it's real. So that's what we're dealing with. So Jesus has to demonstrate that power to the watching world. I have come to destroy this. We can't stay on the mountain. and well, That's coming. But I've got to come down into the valley and deal with this. And so he comes down, divinity versus the demon, and he casts the demon out, and he makes it clear that he is the one who has power not only over the natural world, but the supernatural world. Yes? Okay. Finally, number three, the divine person. Ready? Verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now, don't miss this. I promise you this will be worth the price of admission. What did the three just see on the mountain the day before? The glory of God. Right? God in Christ somehow pulls back the flesh there and reveals the glory. The face that had changed, the glory, the glory cloud. So they saw the glory of God. Only the three of them right there on the mountain. But all the people down in the valley, they said they were amazed at the greatness of God. What did they see? They saw the glory too. They didn't see it unveiled like they saw on the mountain. But what did they see? They saw it at work defeating the works of the devil. That's the glory of God. They had the same exact vision that Peter, James, and John had on the mountain. Only they saw it manifested in the battle between Jesus and Satan. And Jesus won. They were amazed at the greatness. That's the glory of God. So sometimes we have a tendency to think, listen, here's the practical part. Boy, wouldn't it have been great to have been on that mountain with Peter, James, and John and to see the glory of God? You see that glory every time you encounter God. Every time that you bend your knee in prayer and bow your heart. Every time you pick up the Bible and read his word. Every time you gather in a, in a corporate worship service or, or a Bible study. You see the glory of God. You experience the greatness of God. You have an encounter with the living God. Every moment of every day that you're, you're, you're part of the word of God. He, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we don't need the mountaintop experience, the transfiguration. We have the glory of God right here, right here within us. We have it in our hands. It's powerful that we understand that. They saw, they, they saw what Peter, James, and John saw, but only in a different format. They saw it beating the, the demon. Powerful, powerful stuff. John, let's just, the divine person, did everybody understand? No, but some people did. Take a look at John 3, 1 and 2. Remember Nicodemus? He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, a little fearful of his brothers. So he comes at night, and what does he say? Here's the testimony. Rabbi, we know. These are the guys who understood the scriptures. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. We know that you are a teacher. He's sensing who Jesus truly, and later at the crucifixion, we know what Nicodemus knows. He's come to true faith in the living God. 
And then, of course, back to 2 Peter. We did a little bit last week just to tie it up, and then we'll close. 2 Peter 1.16, here it is. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, let's be clear. He's clearly talking about at one level, there's many layers to Scripture, but at one level, the top layer, he's talking about the transfiguration. We were eyewitness to his majesty. But what else was Peter and James and John and the disciples and the masses witness to as far as his majesty? Everything. Every word he spoke was a testimony to his majesty. He spoke and he taught as one who had authority, unlike any of the religious leaders ever taught. Every miracle he ever performed was a testimony to his majesty. Everything he ever did, every breath he took was a testimony to his majesty. And we bear witness to that. We were with him for three and a half years. Eyewitness testimony to the glory and the majesty of the one true living God. That's powerful. So how do we close? The second passion prediction. I told you we'd get to the end of the passage. We're here now. 943B to 45. Here's the end of the passage. And you'll see why it fits at the close. While everyone was marveling at all Jesus did, that's the end of 43, he said to his disciples, now he's speaking just to them again, which he's done before, second passion prediction, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. There it is. Remember, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. And he must be crucified and die and on the third day rise again. Okay, so he's predicting it the second time. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and that they were afraid to ask him about it. So what's happening in that portion? And then we'll show you a couple passages. That's a grace from God. Why is that a grace? Imagine if they knew what Jesus knew. What did Jesus know about his departure? Everything. He knew exactly when it was going to take place. He knew exactly how it was going to take place. He knew who would betray him. He knew who would deny him. He knew who would spit on him. He knew who would pull at his beard. He knew who would scourge him. He knew who would hammer the nails into his hands and into his feet. He knew all of that, and every moment of it he knew it. And he lived in that truth and that reality. Why don't you know that moment in your life? Because you couldn't handle that truth. None of us could. That's a grace that God does keeps that hidden from us. Can you imagine knowing when you would leave this place and how? And you lived every moment in the light of that truth? You, 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 could, you couldn't live. So he just withholds that and says, it's enough. I tell you I'm leaving. You'll learn more later. You'll understand it after. You're not even going to understand it. While it's taking place, you'll understand after. That's a grace from God. Some people say, boy, I just wish I knew. No, you don't. No, you don't. Remember the, remember the movie, right? A few good men. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. God knows that we could not. I couldn't imagine knowing that moment and then living life today. So that's a grace. He, he says it was hidden from you. You don't need to grasp the whole thing. Just know that this is the truth. It's been prophesied. I'm telling you again, and it's coming. When it's come and when it's done. Remember, life has to generally be lived how? Backwards. 
right? The stuff you're going through today, you'll probably understand better a year from now, three, five, and 10. Stuff you went through three, five, and 10 years ago, you understand better today, don't you? Of course you do. You live life backwards. You walk through it backwards. That's why when we have the whole Bible, the old and the new, we read from the new to the old. Now read from the old to the new, that's fine, but you have the new now that allows you to do what? Read back into the old and have a deeper understanding of what was being said in the old. Why was God telling us that then? We find that fulfillment in the new, right? The new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. One of the great theological statements ever made. That's the truth. So this is powerful. So we're, we're protect, God protects us. Thank him for that. I don't want to know. And I certainly don't want to know how. Reminds me of the, 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 the story of, of the... We're at the memorial service for the grandfather of the family. And um, they were talking. They had given the different eulogies about him. But in the back room, some of the older uh, siblings were talking about their grandfather. And one of them said, you know, I, I want to go just like grandfather went um, in his sleep. Not like the other three who were screaming in the back of the car. <laughs> Later, you can tell me that you got that. It's a joke. That's why I'm not a comedian. Don't want to go like the one screaming in the back. Well, Grandpa's I don't know. He's turned over. Watch. A couple things, and then we'll go to the table. Ready? This is all old and new. This is, all, this is one word. Watch. Turned over to Gentile dogs. How's that even possible? This, this Messiah is coming through the line of, of, of the promised line of Messiah. He's coming through the line of, of David. Abraham, Isaac, how, how is it possible? What, what is a Gentile going to have anything to do with this? Well, Psalm twenty two sixteen. Watch. Dogs surround me. Do you ever wonder when you're reading Psalm, what, what is that all about? You have to see it in the new. You have to put it together. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Rome is in power. Rome is in power. Can you imagine that? Hundreds and hundreds of years before these prophecies are being made. Let's keep building now so that you can see. You need to see this whole picture of what Jesus was telling them that was going to happen. Roman crucifixion. How did Israel How did Israel deliver capital punishment? What was it for Israel? Stoning. They didn't crucify. They knew nothing of that. This came perhaps from the Persians. Rome had perfected it by this time. And crucifixion was the way, not for a Roman citizen, unless you were the worst of the worst, but for all of the Gentile dogs, anyone outside of Rome, this is what would happen to you. You would be crucified. So Deuteronomy 21, 23. Sometimes when you read a passage, you ask what's not there. You read what's there, but then you say it's instructing us what's not there. Watch. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What is not there? Cursed is everyone who is stoned. There's no cursing for that. The curse was for one who would be hung on a tree. This is prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before when there was nothing in Israel that would have given them any understanding of what this would mean as far as hanging on a tree and being crucified. This is God's perfect plan for his son, the promised Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God who was promised to be the savior of the world. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So this is, the, this is the cursed one. 
In Hebrews 13, 12, just a simple point on this, really out of Leviticus 16, but just see this. Jesus also suffered outside. He's in Jerusalem, right? No prophets killed outside of Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem, but he's not in the city. Why? Watch this. He's outside the city gate to make the people, to make the people holy through his own blood. What people? No, ho, 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 all people. Think about it for a moment, just like this. Jesus, Jewish, Messiah, inside the city gates, right by the temple, crucified, dead and buried. The assumption for all people is he died for his own people. No. No, he's coming outside the gate to let everybody know in the watching world that I have come to die for all people, every tongue, tribe, and nation. But it's deeper than that. Go back to the Old Testament in Leviticus. I didn't put any scripture up, but I just want to show you. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest makes atonement for all of the people of Israel. Two goats. One is sacrificed on the altar. The other, this is done to the goat. The hands of the high priest is placed on the head of the goat. And symbolically, only symbolically, the sins of Israel are transferred to the goat. We call it the scapegoat. You know what that means. Now, once the sins have been symbolically transferred, the goat is led outside the camp, outside the gate, into the darkness and the wilderness where there's a weeping and a gnashing of the teeth. And it's a picture. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come, the promised Messiah, the true Lamb of God, the one who truly would atone for sins and truly take them away, must be crucified outside the gate. See that? That's how that fits perfectly together. And then moving on, we're almost there. This is important not to miss. You you, you see the Gentile dogs surround him. You see that he's going to be hung on a tree. He's crucified by the Romans, the Gentiles. Now he drank the cup of God's wrath. What is that all about? From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Do you know that naturalists have been trying to explain that away forever and they can't? Do you take God at his word? Did darkness cover the land? The Bible says it did, so it did. But there's a reason for that. it's, It's teaching us something beyond just the fact that it was dark. Darkness had covered what? The countenance of the living God. In that moment in time, for the very first time in all eternity, the Father and the Son had been what? Separated. God the Father couldn't look upon God the Son, who had become sin, who knew no sin. And this is testified, listen, in extra-biblical, you know what that means outside the Bible? This this darkness is testified to in a number of extra-biblical writings. So there's no question, something supernatural took place, whatever it was. The naturalists can believe what they want, but something. But it was done by God, regardless of how it was done. It was done by the hand of God to tell us something, to teach us teach us what was darkness had covered. This was the darkness that Jesus came to dispel as the light of the world. But before he would dispel that light, he must suffer and die. He must do what's called, it's a big word, but, but it, it's an easy word. And you don't hear it much today. Propitiation. He propitiated. He appeased. He satisfied the wrath of God. God was angry with sin. So Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath and propitiates the wrath of God. That's what's happening from noon to three. So what is that supposed to tell you why there's so little detail about the real crucifixion? Why? 
The whole point of it wasn't the crucifixion. Hundreds and thousands had been crucified. The roads were lined with crosses. I'm not minimizing the pain of crucifixion, mind you, but thousands have been crucified. But no one ever dealt with the wrath of God like he did when he hung on that cross. That's the whole point of the sixth to the ninth hour. That's what changes everything about understanding the pain that he endured on our behalf. So now, my God, my God, 22-1, why have you forsaken? He's forsaken. He's been cursed. He's forsaken. God has turned away. You see how it fits? But then what does he say? The curse has been reversed. It is finished. 1930. But we can't stop there. Why? And I don't want to wait just for the resurrection. Not enough. Because you go to the resurrection, you go, that's God's stamp of approval on the substitutionary atonement. of Je-. Yes, it is. It is. But it comes before that. How do we know? Seven words of Christ. What's the final word? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What was once divided? The Son having been separated from the Father. From all eternity, never, never, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In beautiful relationship, love, community, and harmony. Separated. The eternal, infinite punishment of God's wrath separated. But before he gives up the ghost into your hands. What was once separated has now been rejoined. That's your gospel. That's the truth of God's word. Is that your truth today? Before we come to the table, is that your truth? Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? If you feel a prompting, whether you're here or by way of the internet, if you feel a prompting, an urging inside, that's the Holy Spirit at work. You just heard the gospel, the whole counsel of God. We're sinners in need of a Savior, and we cannot save ourselves, but we don't need to. We have one who has paid the penalty. Jesus hung on that cross. My God, my God, why? Why for you? So this is a moment of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Jesus has come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I and I alone will give you rest. Remember the most important rest that you're going to get is not on the other side. That's coming. But the most important rest that you're going to get is here and now, right now. You can rest from your self-salvation project. Put down all of that doing to try to earn God's favor. We don't get to heaven with our good works, our church attendance, giving our money. We don't get to, we, we don't, 